0: This episode is sponsored by National Treasures Artists in Residence. National Treasures funds artists' participation in artists in residence programs during their twilight years. They also forge mentorships so that expertise honed over years will be passed along one on one to a younger generation of artists and memorialized in a digital library. Visit NationalTreasuresAIR.org. On this episode we have John Friel. John was born and raised in the Midwest, just outside of Chicago. Since young, he has had a penchant for bringing creative friends together in an artistic pursuit, be it a band or a magazine. He earned his undergraduate degree at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And in addition to pursuing his artistic endeavors, he became involved in some technical projects where he could develop his expertise in computer coding and programming. He has brought this expertise to bear in the startup he co-founded called Art in Res, broadening the distribution of art through an online platform.
1: John, thank you so much for being on the show. Likewise, thanks for having me. So, are you now in um upstate New York as well near Johnson? I'm in the Chicago suburbs. Oh, you're yeah. in Chicago, okay. Uh are you so you you're doing quarantine there? Um,
2: yeah, well, I'm I guess I'm not as perfectly quarantined as I should be, but I'm a uh,
1: I'm visiting my parents for a little bit. Gotcha. All right. And um where which suburb are they in? Uh, it's called Downers Grove, um, gotcha. pretty close to the one I grew up in, which is okay. called LaGrange. Okay, gotcha. So you born born in high school and uh, middle school was all there? Yep. Uh,
2: yeah, it's a pretty consistent uh, childhood. <laughs> gotcha. Do you have siblings, John? I do. I have one younger sister. She also works in tech. She's a product manager at uh, AWS. Oh, yeah.
1: Nice. Okay. Um, is there like a, a family lineage in in tech uh your parents in the the tech space uh, My dad is an engineer
2: okay. but not a software engineer, although he did learn to code at one point okay. but he's a he's a mechanical engineer he works in manufacturing okay very midwestern <laughs> yeah. and my mom is a artist and graphic designer
1: okay, so I'm actually so just like a combination yeah. of my parents. Of the two of them. So that's where your artistic uh, ability uh, and prowess uh, comes from, so to speak. Um, Growing up, where did you, what what sparked first? Was it on the artistic side or was it the the tech side and programming? Did you do programming when you were young or did they kind of evolve together?
2: Well, I don't know about
1: programming specifically, but
2: I I do think that I have somewhat unusual personality and that I'm, maybe, you know, less skilled than usual in most domains, but I'm more skilled than usual in STEM things and also visual creative things. Yeah. So I always gravitated both. I was, you know, I was on the math team through most of high school. Okay. Uh, I actually really loved math. And if I hadn't gone into art, I probably would have done something like maybe physics or math. Uh, but I also really love uh, art, music, creative expression, Uh, And so I've always, actually throughout my life, I've always kind of like oscillated back and forth between emphasizing more one or the other. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I love that. Um, A good uh, friend of mine, uh, an artist named Sarah Awad, who recently has been represented by Night Gallery. Um, She has an undergrad degree in in math. (laughs) And she's this amazing artist. And she actually now teaches art at um, UC Irvine. Cool, yeah one of her works in, in my collection. I'm a big fan. Um, so growing up, you're in math club, but you also started a punk band.
2: <laughs> yeah, did you know that?
1: Yes, I, I guess another
2: true through line throughout my life is that I've also uh, corralled groups of friends into starting projects together. Uh, getting those projects to make money is a fairly late development in my life. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I really love working with other people on a shared creative vision. And <laughs> yeah, an early instance of that, or a teenage instance of that, was a band.
1: What was the name of the band?
2: Uh, <laughs> oh my God. I'm, I have this really complex mix of pride and embarrassment about basically anything <laughs> I did as a child. Uh,
1: <laughs> well said. You described everybody. <laughs> sure, yeah. Okay, that's
2: probably true.
1: <laughs> uh, Okay,
2: so the band was called Metacom, so M-E-T-A-C-O-M, uh, which is the name of a Native American chieftain who led an uprising against the European settlers, so we were a very, uh, we took a, a stand as part nice. of our identity. Really? Uh, we also kind of liked that the name sounded a bit like, I don't know, a corporation name or something.
1: <laughs> right. You could see that company IPOing. <laughs> um, and so, in keeping in line with this theme of corralling friends in artistic or creative endeavors, you also started a, a magazine.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I'm so my mind is blown that you know this. So it, it was a, a apostrophe zine. If, if you ah, know the term zine, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So it was a it was a photocopied. Uh, publication very very DIY right right. yeah most of my projects have been DIY but yeah my friends and I would write articles for this zine
1: and distribute them very cool (laughs) Um, what medium was your artistic medium of choice
2: back when I was an artist well that also that changed you know over the course of my uh, period of identifying primarily as an artist instead of something else
1: so when you were applying uh, to uh, SAIC and eventually got accepted and attended, um, what, what, what were you focused on there?
2: Uh, I, I didn't have a super coherent artistic identity at mm-hmm. the end of high school. Um, I probably spent more time working on music, actually. Yeah. Um, but I applied with it, I was incorrectly advised to apply with a diverse portfolio that would show a range of skills when I found out after the fact that what the admissions team looks for is the ability to produce a coherent body of work. So I didn't apply with a coherent body of work. I applied with a mix of graphic design and drawing, painting, and illustration. And some video art, actually. Okay. Um,
1: but it, it worked in your favor. You were accepted.
2: I, I was accepted, yes. yeah.
1: yeah. And so, while there, were you, did you focus on any particular form? Or so I went to the School
2: of the Art Institute of Chicago, which, as far as art programs go, is fairly um, open-ended. Yeah. So my degree is just a BFA. Okay. Uh, you didn't have to declare any more specific concentration than that. Mm. Uh, I did spend a lot of time in the painting department, most okay. of which was making paintings, but I part of the reason I gra, uh excuse me, part of the reason I gravitated to the painting department is because I really liked the faculty. So I found uh, really smart, thoughtful professors that I, I wanted to be in their critiques. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in the painting department.
1: Nice, nice.
2: And then after, when I moved to after school, uh, some in Chicago and some in New York, I was making the, the work that I was making that I think was most interesting was uh, this work that rode the line between installation and sculpture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would, given given a space, which is always some kind of like DIY apartment gallery or warehouse gallery space, I would uh, construct walls inside the space, but often pushed right up against the actual existing walls in the space. So. And then, a, you know, they were, they were built with two by fours and sheetrock and painted with white house paint, so they looked exactly like the walls in a normal gallery space. So, they, a thing that I really liked about them was that building a, a wall is a really, really aggressive intervention, but they also could ride completely below a person's perception. Wow. So I liked the uh, duality of being both extremely aggressive and uh, barely perceptible. And then also one of the things that I would some that I started playing with doing was uh, I also would sometimes uh, affix more expressive sculptural things to the walls and sometimes even put friends art on the walls, uh, which I think maybe uh, was a little bit of a premonition of my switch to building platforms for other artists. (laughs) I was literally building platforms for other artists uh, that I switched to uh, making digital platforms for other artists wow now we know
1: (laughs) where the genesis of the ideas came from you went from the physical to the to the digital i love that um when you were at saic you had this art gallery am i pronouncing this right allegon
2: that is correct uh so this is probably true in most cities
1: but there in
2: chicago when i was there there was a thriving uh diy apartment gallery scene Mm -hmm. uh i'm not totally sure that this is still the case but around 2006, 2008, uh, in Chicago there there were collectors who would buy art from established artists and then because there are multiple art schools churning out young artists in Chicago, there's this thriving uh, contemporary scene with lots of young and interesting artists, but the two groups were not connected. Okay. So the, it was basically in the waters, a young artist in Chicago, that you wouldn't make money selling art to local art collectors. So uh, most people I knew weren't even trying to do that. So there was was this really actually amazing spirit of uh, finding really scrappy ways to just make shows happen on your own. So some people would start these DIY galleries. I I did that for two years. And there was this really amazing sense of the kind of being like for the community and by the community. Um, It was also frustrating because, uh, you know, the collector money that would support that thriving ecosystem over time wasn't flowing in as much as uh, it would have been nice for it to have been. Yeah. But, um, but yes, yeah, so I, I participated in that by, with, again, with a group of friends, uh, moving into a warehouse space where we hosted regular exhibitions. Um, and one of the funny things about that is we, we lived in the space, which is one of the things that generally you have to do to be able to afford it as a young artist. <laughs> True. So I paid $200 a month, and my bedroom was a walk-in closet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that kind of scrappy creative spirit was a really big part of uh, that community in my time in Chicago, which I
1: really cherish looking back on. Yeah, oh, amazing. Well, you had the experience with walls. You could have like built it out a bit more.
2: <laughs> yeah, we talked about it. And when I moved to New York, I did, I moved into another warehouse space and I did oh. with uh, my roommate wow. build out walls to create little structures in the space. Got gotcha.
1: you. Gotcha. And uh, was it at uh, SAIC that you uh, met uh, Michael Tebow?
2: Yes, actually, yeah. Tebow is a, a good friend of mine from school. He, he transferred in around the end of my time at SAIC. Okay. and that's when we met
1: yeah nice nice um and do you by chance know us Neha Shah no I don't okay she also has SAIC roots um at some point I'll, I'll make an introduction everybody should just get to know each other
0: that uh, sounds great do you know what years she was at
1: SAIC I don't I think she's younger than you so I think it might have been after you had left um cool I'm just guessing Might've been, yeah, I, I don't even want to hazard a guess and get it wrong, but- <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, you, you led the way and she followed in your footsteps, we'll say that. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm I'm the first person to have moved from Chicago to New York,
1: or right. if that's what you're even referring to. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and then when you got to New York, you, uh, tell us about Bureau NYC.
2: Oh yeah, uh, so one of my other really close friends from the Art Institute, Corey Vincent, is an incredibly, incredibly talented uh, visual thinker and maker. So we were in the painting department together and we became really good friends. I always thought he was one of the most talented painters in our program. And he moved to New York a little bit before me. Um, And man, so much of, God, so much of what I've barely managed to pull off in my life, I really owe a ton of gratitude to Corey for. Uh, He's, He's, um, yeah, he's super talented. He's done a lot of favors for me. He's a really great guy, but for a while, he and I ran a design company together. Um, we did that in New York. Uh, we had, <laughs> we both, um, had these kind of like starving artist jobs early on in New York. I worked at Trader Joe's and Corey worked at something like U-Tractor Blick or something. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I don't, is is this? Do you want me to go into the details? Yeah, it's no, kind of I was, a funny story here. Okay, I
1: was like yeah, this is a, <laughs> a part of your experience, so that's what I want to hear about. Okay, so Corey
2: um, had he had been coding longer than me. He he wasn't interested in becoming like a full fledged programmer, but like a lot of people, he had picked up like sufficient web shops to make websites, and he would like knowing HTML and CSS, he would. Uh, install WordPress and then build out uh, websites for people on top of that, mostly for artists, but other people too. Um, And he had a bunch of experience doing that. And he, in this period when we were doing these like starving artist jobs, he answered an ad on Craigslist to do uh, graphic design, Photoshopping work. And it ended up being for the company Supreme, which since has become really big. So (laughs) at the, at the time, the their website was just this really you know just this kind of small thing managed by this one guy who who made it who was just like a childhood friend of the guy who started supreme so corey would just like go to this guy's apartment and sit there and like photoshop the background out of product images (laughs) and so and that was how the supreme website was managed and around this time uh another friend from the art institute an older person further along in their career was starting a company that made artist design custom t-shirts. And that person approached Corey to make the website, but Shopify wasn't as much of a thing back then. So, uh, so Corey thought, well, you know, I could certainly handle the graphic design and HTML and CSS part, but the, the more hardcore programming piece of accepting payments and everything, that's that's beyond my pay grade right now. Mm-hmm. So, but, it, but it was like a, this really juicy gig, you know, it could be a thing that could have gotten him out of his like art supply store day job. Right. <laughs> so he, he pitched to me, he said, John, I know, I know this thing about you that you have this nerdy side to your personality. And like I was telling you, I used, I thought about maybe doing math or something. Yeah. And he was like, I think you could probably learn to program if you wanted, Right. Wow. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he was like, well, I have this, opportunity to build a, a web store and it the programming chops required are beyond my level, but I, I have the sense that you could probably do it. <laughs> I was like, well maybe, but I can't just like learn to program on a dime in order to accept this gig. And he's, <laughs> he said this thing where he was like, I don't know, this guy that comes into work on the Supreme website, like he doesn't seem like that much smarter than you or anything. Like I'm pretty sure if he could do it, you could do it. There's this thing called Ruby on Rails. Just John, just promise me you'll like Google Ruby on Rails and follow up with me and tell me if you think you you could do it. And so I was like, all right, I will do that. And
1: what is Ruby on Rails?
2: Uh, Ruby on Rails is a web development framework. It's okay. uh, and it was um, it was probably the most popular one at that time. So a lot of things that you've heard of, like. Uh, Shopify, GitHub, Twitter, okay. uh, a lot of these things started as Ruby on Rails apps, and then as they grow in complexity, they're broken out into what's called a service-oriented architecture, but Ruby on Rails is a its a very, very good uh, prototyping tool for interactive, uh, stateful web applications.
1: Wow, okay. Nice. Uh,
2: but anyways, it was, you know, it was like the hot thing
1: back yeah. then, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, and so Corey was like, Google... Ruby on Rails and tell me if you think you could do this. And so I did and I said, yeah, I actually think I could do this. And so we accepted the gig. Uh, I went to a a Barnes and Nobles or a Borders and bought a bunch of physical programming books and just sat down and started learning. And I loved it so much that I basically stopped making art and was a programmer from then on.
1: Wow, amazing what (laughs) sparks things, right? It's um, now, I mean, Programming is a form of art.
2: Uh, depending on which mean, yes, I agree with that.
1: <laughs> well, okay. How would you say it is a form of art?
2: Well, I, I do think that there are interesting things that programming and art have in common. Yeah. Uh, so, especially building a new system in code requires thinking about uh, how people perceive the world yeah. and how best to model it? What to include? What to leave out? Um, the tension between abstraction and the kind of messy, complex detail that is actual lived experience, mm-hmm. uh, and that is something that I think activates a lot of art.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you know, if you think about something like, you know, one of the sort of pithy things that people will say is that uh, modern painting started with Manet because that's the first time where paint wasn't just used as a technology for image creation, but it was the time, it was the first time that the, the material of the paint itself in tension with the image became an activating part of the experience, right? right. Uh, and so there's this, uh, there's this interesting perceptual tension between the slightly abstracted version of what the image is uh, and the actual theoretical world that it's portraying and that, a, a, in a funny way, a similar tension activates coding. Um, it This probably sounds really abstract. So to make this yeah. a little bit more concrete. I
1: love where you're going with this.
2: <laughs> okay, cool. So a, a, a way that maybe would make this concrete is that you know, a lot of time, I think you'll see in a lot of... Uh, like software is like if a person needs to select a gender, there'll be a drop down with like male and female as right. options, mm-hmm. right? That obviously the actual lived experience of gender is much more messy and complicated. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, you know, the system builder is faced with this decision between, uh, modeling a reductive version of something that is, you know, easier to implement or might have some kind of like performance benefit versus something more, uh, uh, adequate to the complexity of the actual world that it purports to represent. And so uh, that is a thing that I've found to activate both at least uh, image making and painting and building software systems.
1: Oh, that's so fascinating. You know, when you were talking about uh, Manet, um, what came to mind was how the daguerreotype type kind of liberated painting. It didn't need to just be replication of Right. Our physical world and that's the birth of modern art and that we could certainly start playing with these things and color and shape and gave rise to color field theory and cubism and all kinds of other great gifts of the of the art world. Absolutely. Um, on the on the programming side, um actually I have a friend and I, I'm not remembering the details of it specifically, so I'll have to send it to you, but um, they actually conducted an art auction where they sold coat. Huh. And um, there, there was some tie with the Smithsonian re- related to that and um, they, it was in New York and they publicized it quite a bit and they were very proud that Gagosian showed up. Um, I mean, I don't think it was just an enormous event and I think there were like five lots. Uh, but I'll get you the, the details on that, um, and you know, it's, yeah. it's just, I'd love it's, to see that. the The uh, galleries continue to struggle with how do they address like um, tech uh, uh, patronage. I mean, it's just the typical experience in the, in the in the history of art is that um, you know money centers or well-to-do areas have become patrons of art. So it's a big finance contingency out of New York. In L.A., the entertainment industry has historically done a lot in, in, in the art world. And so the tech side is just sort of there and waiting. Um, but you, when you go to the fairs in San Francisco, it's a lot of uh, old money as opposed to to tech money. And, you know, if you like L.A. is more of a center than San Francisco is for for art. And I think Pace Gallery set something up in Silicon Valley and, and Palo Alto. Um but it's interesting, like, how do you appeal to that crowd and their uh, artistic sensibilities? Um, and so, uh, this kind of area that you're playing in, I yeah. think you're well positioned to be able to come up with some, something.
2: <laughs> yes, that is certainly true. Uh, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating set of circumstances. Um, I could probably speculate and riff on what's going on there. I don't know that it necessarily know for sure what is going on um, you know one one piece might be something like the uh, the culture of Silicon Valley has this sort of like uh, the the focus on moving into the future and disruption and the world going forward looking less like the world of the past, probably uh causes some kind of distaste towards anything with any piece of tradition attached to it, which I, I think is fine. Really an I often
1: observation. I love that.
2: Sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I often wonder maybe as some of these tech entrepreneurs age, maybe they might even get a bit more interested in the, some mm. of the traditions that it behooved them to disregard in the earlier phases of their careers and lives. Mm. Um, I, also, think that there's a particularly with software because so much of Silicon Valley is about software and even consumer software. Um, the there is certainly one dynamic which is just very uh, uh, different between the two, whereas software is infinitely reproducible at zero cost. Uh, you know, an instance of a piece of data uh, is infinitely reproducible and fungible. Uh, one of the ways that this is captured is with the the saying uh, "information wants to be free," um, and then art is just the opposite of that in so many ways, right? right? Uh, or at least like the kind of archetypal artwork, where it's uh, the probably the least fungible thing you can do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Handmade, fragile, very difficult yeah, to reproduce, difficult yeah. to move around the world
1: no i get that it's interesting it's almost but uh, like i'll draw a comparison to the pharmaceutical industry and software feels the same way where the first pill costs 400 million the second pill costs 65 cents and 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 software is similar like the, the the first iteration of it is incredibly expensive but then a copy of it of course is marginal cost of zero yes
2: yeah right um, yeah, and producing the first copy, as it were, of an artwork is also very uh, exactly. cap- capital intensive in a sense. You know, it requires all this training up front and then all the time it takes to hand make something. But then it doesn't benefit from the scale effects of being reproducible at low cost. Well, maybe, pr- maybe prints do or something like three. Well, 3D.
1: exactly. Yeah. I was just saying, you know, additions, um, but then, um, then you run counter to the exclusivity. Uh, right. Element which is important, driving value in the in the art world. Yeah, absolutely. So fascinating, and I, you know, I was attempting to conflate some of those concepts, and I didn't quite get there. <laughs> what you know, one of the things,
2: maybe a, a glimmer of hope, is that one of the things that I have found is that uh, so many people that I've met in Silicon Valley are. Uh, natural makers mm-hmm. driven by this creative energy and desire to put something out into the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: that is a thing that Silicon Valley and artists, you know, share at a very deep level. Mm-hmm. And the recognition that art, the recognition on the part of Silicon Valley people that artists are very much like them, but with a maybe slightly different skill set, uh, different set of emphases that has really resonated. And I do think that, uh, on a kind of like interpersonal level, tech people like artists.
1: Uh, yes, agreed. agreed. I see that too.
2: And nice. you know, they they seem like very natural, uh, you know, fellow travelers, yeah. spiritual cousins of some sort.
1: Overlapping the journey, so to speak.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you spent some months living uh, in uh, Silicon Valley recently. We're gonna get to that, but before I do, I don't want to give short shrift to post context.
2: Uh, Yes. So um, this is my, the the most interesting piece of this is uh, a website builder for visual artists. It's called Exhibitor, which is the English word Exhibitor with all the vowels taken out. Uh, I came up with that name before I even knew how to program. So that was was kind of like the vogue in naming know maybe 2007 or 2008. Um, And I've wanted to change the name ever since, but I it's a five letter domain name. And so having that is just really hard to let go of. Yeah. Anyways, so I built this uh website builder for visual artists. Um as I was starting to code, uh the most obvious uh clients for Corey and myself for doing um client web work was our just community of artist friends and mm. they would have interesting projects in mind, but basically no budgets. So it uh it made more sense to build you know one website builder that they could all use
0: mm-hmm. instead
2: of making uh, you know very complex involved custom websites for uh, each and every one we we certainly made some and they were really amazing rewarding projects but just the the economics of it made more sense as a website builder
1: well and there we see that theme again of building community corralling friends in creative endeavors that we saw at Alagon we're seeing that here that's uh, that's really great this this idea of giving or supporting your fellow uh creatives your fellow artists um very admirable john oh, yeah thank you yeah. Um, and so from there the uh when did you first conceive of uh, art in res
2: i didn't conceive of it my co-founder, John Sillings.
1: All right, in fact, we did do the interview with John Sillings and he, he talked about that. So then he reached out to you. Correct, I was living in Berlin and um, John pitched the idea to me.
2: We, did he tell you how we met? Because that's kind of a funny story.
1: I, I can't, I don't think he did, actually. <laughs> I would love to okay. hear.
2: So there's this woman uh, named Nina, who I dated for many years in New York. Okay. and Nina lived with her sister
1: Noni. All right, who's now John Ceiling's wife?
2: Yeah. Okay. And so the four of us so Noni started dating other John. And so there was Nina and Noni with almost identical names and then John and John. And the four of us were this group of friends and we hung out and uh, oh. yeah. uh it's like JS in touch. <laughs> <Like>.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Johnson and, <laughs> Johnson and. <laughs> <laughs> right. um,
2: but anyways, yeah, so fast forward several years, and uh, I was living in Berlin, and John had this idea for a rental art marketplace, right, and he pitched it for me yeah. and um, i I wasn't sure about the initial idea, but I knew I really liked John, and I I, you know, I, I don't know if I'm just patting myself on the back for this, but one of the things that I think I maybe can do, given this history of corralling people together, is I can identify a person that I think has the potential mm-hmm. to be someone who can start a self-initiated project. Because it's very different from, you know, excelling at a day job or in yeah. school or something. And I thought that I recognized in John the profile of a person who would be an excellent co-founder and, um, and a, Another thing that was really appealing to me about it is that <laughs> I, as an artist, I obviously very deeply understood what it's like to be an artist, but I had no idea how art collectors thought. Mm. And John had started buying art. And uh, this idea that I would have access to someone who, you know, obviously deeply naturally understood what it's like to get interested in buying art for the first time seemed like a perfect complement to what I naturally understood. And uh, his skill set also seemed like a really natural balance for mine. Right. And so I you know I thought that he and I would be a pretty good kind of like yin and yang mm-hmm. for building something that would be a great experience for both artists and art buyers. And I've been really happy with with the relationship working with him. He's fantastic, by the way.
1: That's great, uh, and he obviously speaks incredibly highly of you, and um we spoke quite a bit about uh artdenrez and and the recent uh pivot so um just so that the both episodes are unique, we won't dive into that, but from your perspective, John, I'd love to hear about how the Y combinator experience was
2: it was It was really great um I don't know if this is. This is probably not going to be useful for basically anyone in your audience but one of the things that was most uh really one of the best things about it for me is that um i i've been so deep in art stuff mm-hmm. I, obviously i've been coding but um i sort of stayed culturally in in art you know, most of my friends are still artists and musicians and things and so it was just really nice to be in a community of people who are more like the nerdy side of my personality that's the thing that i you know, do feel like I had been really missing in my life. And it was just really nice to be around people who were, who could, you know, talk for hours and hours about, uh, you know, how to build a software system or just any other nerdy topic. Um, So it felt like a kind of homecoming to a culture of nerdiness that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, But obviously it was incredibly valuable, uh, invaluable as a learning experience. (laughs) Um here's here's something maybe that I am uniquely positioned to, to observe about it that might resonate more well with your audience. Please. So Why Combinator has a lot in common with art school. Okay. And Paul Graham, the founder, has a weekly bi biweekly, but grit? Afe- a- effectively a critique.: Yeah. so Paul Graham has an MFA in painting.
1: Oh wow, I didn't know that. RISD. Okay.
2: And the the good things about art school are just baked into the program. So for one thing uh, it's no one's hand is held so you're really tossed into this environment and allowed to sink or swim and I'm sure you know this but such a big part of art school is you you have your practice and you make things and then your advisors will come and help you like see them through a different set of eyes, more experienced set of eyes. And then you'll put your work in front of a group of peers, and it will be critiqued. And that is basically how Y-combinator works. Mm-hmm. So you're singularly responsible for the success of your company, obviously. And then you have these advisors. They they call them partners instead of you know uh, professors, right. but they they have all this wisdom and experience, and they give you feedback on what you're working on. And then you meet in front of a group of peers and. Uh, there's no physical thing to center the conversation around like in a critique everyone sits facing the painting or sculpture <laughs> right. But at Y Combinator you sit in a circle but everyone goes around the room and just talks about the progress what's working what's not working and um, You get feedback from your peers and advisors as as it were.
1: I love that. That is so brilliant that uh, an art school paradigm or model is applicable in uh, in the tech world and in, in an incubator startup setting that's um, that's fantastic.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. I think there's something
1: about it being an applied practice instead
2: of a theoretical one. Like It's yeah, the actual concrete, real-world results yeah. that matter. Yeah. And so there, there must be something about the nature of that, that uh, to which that structure, or for which that structure is a really good fit.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. John, in your words, what's your vision for art in res?
2: So I... I'm keeping an open mind about the future vision, um, but at at the most abstract level, it's to give all the amazing artists that are out there a better shot at making a living, doing the thing that they love
0: Mm
2: -hmm. and on the buyer side to make this really incredible thing, which is art, which so many people perceive as being something that only exists in these kind of glittering cathedrals of our major art
1: institutions, making that, uh, available to as many people as possible. Nice. fantastic. This has been really great. I appreciate the various conversation threads we were able to conjure. Um, it's going to like seed future discussions in depth.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can't wait.
1: Fantastic. Well, John, I think, um, the both of you really have something special on your hands and, um, I, uh, have been trying to get word out about it. Um, and, uh, It's great what you've been able to achieve during this very challenging time. Um, Your your sales have grown, so that's impressive. Yeah, fingers crossed. We're gonna keep
2: grinding it out. Try to support artists and make art available to people despite whatever crazy plagues and chaos the world throws at us. Exactly,
1: absolutely. Excellent, I really appreciate your time. It was really a great conversation. Um, and we'll certainly be in touch, John. Thank you again.
2: Likewise. Thank you
1: so much, Asim. It's been a pleasure.